Welcome to Bonafide HPP, a podcast designed to educate and support the patients and caregivers of those affected by hypophosphatasia. As a mother and caregiver, host Deborah Fowler has discussions about this rare genetic bone disease with people from around the world. Join Deborah now as she speaks with this week's guest. My guest today is Dr. Jody Thomas, Chief Executive Officer of the Meg Foundation, a nonprofit whose mission is to empower families with pain management strategies, skills, and support they need to prevent and reduce pain. I can't think of a, a better mission statement for our patient community. Uh, and if that's not a hook for today's discussion, I don't know what is. <laughs> Thanks so much for joining us, Jody. Thank you so much for having me. I'm very excited to be here. You know, I, I never heard of the Meg Foundation before, and one of our patients actually pointed it out to me online, and I just got lost in your website just with resources and just found so much awesome information. Can you tell us a little bit about how the foundation was founded and a little bit about your mission and what you do? Absolutely. So I am a clinical health psychologist. My specialization is with uh, medical illness and trauma and kids and pain. And as I don't have to explain to anyone listening to this podcast, how much pain with across various disease populations and even with healthy, perfectly healthy kids, how much of an influence it has on the daily experience. And no matter what thing disease was happening, that it was really painful procedures that become such a big part of patients' lives. And so that became a really huge area of interest for me. And, um, you know, I've been doing this for 25 plus years, which is crazy. But a few years ago, we really knew that in this age of technology and design and communication and podcasts and things like that, you know, I often kind of joke that people don't need me. They need what I know. And what we really, so we got this amazing group of experts from literally around the world. And I was hanging out in the middle of Silicon Valley and technically still on faculty at the, uh, at Stanford, even though I'm now in Denver, but I still teach. And so I was in the middle of Silicon Valley and all the tech people and user experience and all that. And it was really, how do we kind of bring sort of cutting edge science, technology and design together to get the information and very importantly, skills to people when and where they need it. And our desire and mission to do that really became uh, the basis for, and the motivation for the foundation. Well, it's, you know, it's such an inspirational um, mission. And I think there's so, I mean, it just cuts across so many different disease states, right? So many therapeutic Mm -hmm. areas, even in our daily lives, right? It doesn't even have to be related to disease, um, right? No. And what really our motivation came, because as I was going through realizing that there's this massive, massive gap between the research, it's about a 30 to 40 year gap between what clinically happens and the research in turn, it comes to pain and pain management. And when we can close that gap and we can get people to know these skills that it's quite literally life-changing. And so that really became this mission of how do we get the average everyday parent and human to know and understand these things in order to improve their experience as a parent, the child's experience, and honestly, the provider experience, because no provider likes causing a kid pain and distress. And we really wanted to improve the experience for everyone. Yeah. 
you know, I, one of your, I'm sure it rolls off your tongue, but this, you know, biopsychosocial modality of pain. And, yes. and that's really, you know, a big focus of understanding yes. that. Um, can you explain it to us for uh, those of us who are more, more of a lay audience about what yeah. this really means. Yeah, I've been spent 25 years dorking out about this. Um, I will <laughs> do this. So I wish, you know, and it's funny, we're working on a whole education series right now um, about this because, of course, we hear phrases like biopsychosocial model of pain, and most people just stop listening, which I totally get and understand. But it's really important. So, what we're really saying is that. Um, Traditionally, people think of it as what we call a biomedical model, that there's tissue damage and then that hurts and that's it. And then we take care of that tissue damage and it gets better. But that is, in fact, not in fact how it works. And we all know that, really, if we think about it. So the biological components of pain are, you know, what's actually happening with, you know, a needle going into a skin or an injury happening or inflammation or all those things. But there's also like how stressed we are. Um any infection in our body, there's a lot of biological factors of the pain experience. And that's kind of the obvious one. Everyone's like, yeah, I get that. The psychological factors are the one that people tend to react to. They're like, wait, you're saying I'm crazy. I'm like, no, I'm saying that every single human on the planet, their psychological state, their focus of attention, all of this has a massive, massive thing to do with how we process and experience pain. And one of my ultimate examples I'll often give is have you ever noticed that when you stub your toe and you're in a bad mood, it hurts a lot worse than you stub your toe and you're in a good mood. That's a great example. And everyone's like, oh my gosh, yes. yes. I'm like, okay, great. So let's take that and take anything that actually has so much more import, whether that's chronic pain or procedural pain or whatever it is. And that is still true. And all of us know the power of focus of attention and pain, you know, and we work with kids would say, you know, have you ever at the end of the day had a bruise and you didn't even know it was there? And they're like, yeah, I had no idea where I got it. I said, yeah, yeah, that really tells us how our focus of attention that you were playing so hard that you had this experience that you didn't even notice that you had enough quote unquote tissue damage, right? Like you got hit hard enough to get a bruise and you didn't even know it happened. Mm -hmm. So I often ask them, I said, hey, so if you think your brother or sister came up and hit you hard enough to create a bruise, would that hurt? <laughs> They're like, yes, yeah. like, exactly. So it's this massively important role of our focus of attention in how we attend to pain and what we think about pain. And that psychological piece, frankly, is really, really exciting because we have lots of room to mess around with it and lots of room to do things to make ourselves more comfortable. And then we have this social aspect of pain, which is the one that everyone really is like, wait, what? And I think about that even as like small toddlers, when you see with kids like learning to walk, run and fall, and they're on their hands and knees and they will look to a parent. Yeah. And if that parent rushes over and says, oh my gosh, are you okay? Are you hurt? Yes. Then we have the tears and the freak out, right? And if we have, look at them and you see a parent again, like we're not bleeding, right? Like what's right. happening? Being like, hey bud, that was quite a tumble. Good job, you're good. Yeah. Then we get up and we're fine, right? And that isn't faking it. That's not manipulation. That's not anything. That is truly how we do. And anyone who's been in a medical setting knows what it's like to be with a provider who is empathetic and understanding and you feel connected to and how that feels very different than someone who you realize is not connected or you don't trust 
or is acting in a way that's scary or frightening that we're going to escalate. Right. And that is going to be extremely different or the person who, again, if I'd strike this from provider's lips, I would, who's really invalidating. Oh, it's not that bad. Don't worry about it. Or you're overreacting Mm -hmm. or all of those things that that social experience of how people are responding to us, which I think is really relevant, of course, for your population, which is when you're the parent who has to do these injections, the role of you in this is very large. And I, just to be extremely clear, really hard. Okay. Nowhere in any of these discussions I have with people are like, oh, so then it's no big deal. You're like, no, no, because it is all of these factors. It is really hard, but we have distinct strategies that if we're thinking about it in those three categories, it really does help us figure out, okay, how can we make this better? Yeah. And, and, and there are things we can do for each one of them, right? I mean, yeah. even for, you know, I know I talk to a lot of parents and even adults who may be afraid of injections, you know, with my son, Cannon, mm-hmm. you know, the numbing spray, I just, the fact that we would put that numbing spray on, yeah. we wouldn't do an injection without it, but then if he had it, he was okay. And it was like, oh, where's my spray? Where's my spray? Spray, even if it was like almost out of spray, (laughs) it was like exactly thing that he was putting spray on there made a huge difference. It makes a massive difference. And it's a beautiful look at that biopsychosocial model, like numbing cream and numbing spray, because yes, you are actually numbing the skin. You are actually do something to those nerves to decrease what we call nociception or those signals traveling. But you are also in control, making a choice, doing something active. You would say action is the enemy of anxiety. So your son got to make a choice and do something and that, that reduces it. And then you as a parent are supporting that and saying, yes, I know this is hard and we're going to do something. So that's where we feel supported socially. We feel like we're doing something psychologically and we're actually blocking a pain signal. I I love that. I, I love that that interpretation of it. Cause it's, it's leading me to think of things that we're doing that I never really thought in terms of this biopsychosocial uh, <laughs> model. Like for example, um, he always wants to count down to the injection. Uh-huh. So it's not just me going, all right, one, two, three, boom. You know, yeah. he has some control over this process. Um, and you know, I don't, again, I, I that never really a- thought of that, but Exactly. Right. And that's where we think the power of this model, it just gives you a new framework because a lot of families with chronically ill kids, like have developed their ways, right? They've figured some stuff out, but looking at it through that lens helps you figure out, okay, what about this is helpful? And then how can we up the ante of whatever is powerful about that? Right. And like, again, that countdown is about control and it's about choice. And I may not have a choice that I have to get this injection that I hate so much, but I have a choice in how we're going to do it. And that the power of that is massive. What other ways can we, you have any other kind of tips and tricks um, Mm -hmm. for, for, I know there's a ton on your website, but you know, I'm just thinking for those who are listening, a lot of times that these are children that are either just diagnosed or are, you know, just been prescribed injection therapy for their Mm -hmm. enzyme replacement therapy. And, you know, it's, it's not an easy injection. It, nope. It's a, it's a, it's a very thick, viscous, um, you know, um, injection and, and it's something that should be done slow and it stings and, you know, it's, it's, it's not fun. Yeah. Um, and I think parents 
you know, they know that they're a kid, that this is what's best for their children in terms of their health, but it, it can be a real struggle. And, you know, the kids, you know, as we were talking about before the podcast, they can have superhuman strength when yes. there's a parent <laughs> off of them, yes. um, you know, and they get beyond the child hold, you know, where they're younger, mm-hmm. when they, you know, they want to run away and they, they very times are successful in doing mm-hmm. so. Yeah. So, um, you know, how, how do you, uh, again, I know you have, this is not the first time you've ever heard of this. So no. what do you typically tell families who are in these situations, what kind of advice do you give them? So there's, there's several things. Uh, first of all, that I have ultimate empathy for this situation. Like it is really hard. And, you know, I'll often use the phrase kind of space and grace, but space and grace for ourselves as parents and for our kid. And so recognizing the difficulty of that, I know a lot of newly diagnosed parents in particular would get the, I should know how to handle this, which was always such a bizarre statement to me. I'm like, why would you possibly know how to handle this? Like when you had your child, you did not expect this to happen. Like, of course not. You have to develop a very particular skill set now that I wish you didn't have to develop, but you do. And to really think about this, this isn't us being incompetent as parents. This isn't us doing that. It is we, I have to, as a parent, develop this very particular skill set, and my child has to develop this very particular skill set. And to recognize both the necessity of that and the unfairness of it, right? Because yeah. like it's not fair. And I'm like, you're right, buddy, it's not. And I'm really sorry, but we don't have a choice about this one. So let's think about all the things we're going to do to make this easier, better, and faster. And to give you as much choice and power as possible as we can. And that is true, by the way, even when they're those little toddlers and up to those teenagers, right? It is true all the way across the board. And with toddlers, really remembering that what we call receptive language develops more quickly than your expressive. So they understand a lot more than we often give them credit for because they're not chatting away in the same way that we do. Mm-hmm. But having a plan and stepping back and being like, okay, we're going to figure some of this out. And when we're looking at things like, really explaining why and how we have to get this, even to small children who you might not think understand it, right? Is to be like, hey, buddy, I know this is tough and we're going to be able to, but we, we got to do it to keep you healthy and strong, right? The use of language becomes really important. So I remember I had a great kid who taught me this many years ago on that ability. And he started calling his IV and G injection uh, infusions, his liquid gold that he knew this was the stuff that was going to keep him healthier and keep his disease at bay. Mm -hmm. And so even that concept of this is the medicine that keeps us more healthy and more strong. And we always want to be more healthy and and, and more strong and that's tough. And we wish, and so we're going to skip over. And that's really that focus of framing this experience and framing as an experience of not a dread, because really we get ourselves into that hole when it's just a moment of dread for every time we have to do it. Right. Cause then no one's, <laughs> everyone's in a bad spot. Yes. totally. And, and it's really easy to do. And again, I do not say this simply at all. Um, but we have to be like, it has to get to that point where it's becoming something like brushing our teeth or getting dressed, like all the other little things we have to do the day that we don't want to do, mm-hmm. but we got to do. Mm-hmm. And this one is tougher. So it deserves more reward, more motivation, more, all of those things, but sitting there and having that plan. And whether that's with our partner, with little kids, right. If we have one and sit there, be like, okay, how are we going to do this? Cause you're right. Like I joke that like toddlers are trained by Navy seals, that their ability 
to <laughs> to escape and do things. And but they're part very of that, elusive and they're very and, elusive. Yes. But they also it speaks to the very primal nature of that fear that we're really at that worry brain. And so we know that your worry brain is telling you to run away, but you and I know the real you knows we got to get this done so we can be healthy and we can move on with our day. So setting up plans, setting up expectations. Okay. So this is when it's going to happen. This is it. And also setting up rewards more than fine. And parents like, Oh, aren't you bribing them? I'm like, no, we're getting us motivation for getting through something that's hard. We all need motivation for getting through something that's hard, right? Whether that's as an adult being like, great, I'm getting Starbucks after this <laughs> meeting because I got to do whatever, whatever that is. So setting up patients, having things like calendars where they get to plan, um, and then planning our strategy. So topical anesthetic numbing cream or numbing spray is really fantastic particularly for things that like, like, again, this injection can sting, right? So things like vibration can be very useful because to experience pain, it really has to happen in our brain. And so one of the things we're doing is preventing those signals or the strength of those signals to getting to our brain. And so when we use vibration, like there's a great product called Buzzy Bee, but there's other things as well where you're using vibration to essentially create a traffic jam of signals on your nervous system. So you don't have to feel that sensation in the same way. Sometimes it can block them entirely. It's really great for like blood draws and things like that too. So vibration is very, very powerful. Distraction is massively, massively powerful. So everyone knows the difficulty in getting your kid's attention when they're staring at a movie or a game or whatever that is. And now is the time to take advantage of that superpower. Now, as kids get older and even little kids of explaining to them that that not is only distracting them, like, oh, they just didn't look, but it truly changes our processing of our pain signals. And that is a very powerful idea to be like, when you focus on that, you don't experience this in the same way. So let's do it on purpose. Like I will tell kids that I cheat because I'm going to teach them how to do something that they already know how to do. I'm going to teach them how to do it on purpose to make themselves feel better. Right. And so let's make that choice. So, okay. So when we do our injection, we're going to watch Peppa Pig. We're going to use numbing cream. We're going to use Buzzy, whatever that is. And then this is how we're going to hold you. Okay. Do you want to get held like this where there's something called comfort positioning? We should really, really work unbelievably hard not to hold kids down for medical procedures. I understand that's also a really tall ask and a big thing. Mm-hmm. but there are comfort positions. We have guides on our website where, but there's also consent to be like, I know that your worry brain or your lizard brain is going to tell you to run away at this point in time. So this is where I'm going to hold you and remind your body to stay still. Mm-hmm. So we can get this done as soon as we can and we can, it'll be over. Right. So, but this is me helping your body stay still. So we can do this rather than I am holding you on your back pinning you down, pinning you down. Right. Well, I love the idea, you know, even of having a number of different comfort holds and having the child pick which one, and again, you know, this is obviously age dependent, but, um, you know, there are other things I'm thinking you could even do with younger children, you know, maybe I'm thinking out loud, but, you know, maybe you put a sticker on each one of the syringes and say, which, which sticker do you want Ariel, the mermaid, or do you want, you know, Cinderella or, you know, 
100%. This is where we like, which one do we want to get? Yeah. And this is the time where we go to Walgreens and pick out every single kind of cartoon band-aid that they would want yes. after mm-hmm. so that they get to choose every level of choice they can have. Mm-hmm. And so who do we want? I want, yes, but I want to hold my stuffy while I do this. I want to do this. And actually it turns out I want to watch this show. I want to be in my bed. I want to, wherever they want to be, that is comfortable, good. And sometimes you're like, well, you should never associate the injection with like a safe place, like a bedroom. And I'm like, well, maybe, maybe not. Mm-hmm. It really depends on what is comfortable and good for that right. child. It's going to make them feel the most comfortable. Yeah. But you could be yeah. like, great. Do you want to do this in the living room or do you want to do it in your bedroom? Is this our spot? Do we want to have our special little area where here we keep the, the band-aids here? We keep this, that, oh, we got all of our syringes today. Great. Let's go. When we're not doing the injection, yeah. we're going to go through and decorate them all. You get to put yeah. a sticker on each one yep. and then you get to choose. Okay. Which one's first? Oh, it's Ariel today. Brilliant yep. choice. Amazing yep. work. Good job. Cool. Yep. Uh, <laughs> and maybe you put Ariel on the TV while you're doing the exactly. Be like, sweet. Do we want to do this? <laughs> exactly that same thing where you, and every single choice is a moment of praise mm-hmm. and a moment of what a great job taking care of yourself. Yeah. That is brilliant. And having that be a special, cool thing that also great. And to have a reward after that, whether that is small, whether that is like, great, we put a marble in a marble jar. And when we get this many, we get to go pick out a toy. Whatever that is, but it becomes so powerful to be able to have them have choice and control. The other part, the number one advice I give parents, which I also realize is the tall order, is the number one predictor, the research would say, of a child's distress is the parent's distress. Mm. And that makes sense, right? And again, parents are sometimes horrified initially and they're like, does this mean this is my fault? It's my fault. Yeah. No, no. No. So again, to be clear to all your listeners, no. It doesn't. What it means in a gorgeous, beautiful way is that you and your child are attached. Good job. Gold star. That's what we want. That is great. But what it means, it's another opportunity for us to be able to do something to make it easier. So this is that moment when we're like, okay, I've got to take some breaths and center myself. I have to remember that I'm doing this for my child's benefit. And this is going to be helpful. I have to remember that we made a plan and my job is to stay calm and even and to be reassuring, right? And our use of language and the words we use become really important. So seeing things like calling it a poke rather than a shot, calling it, you know, whatever, an injection rather than whatever, but even asking kids, what do you want to call this? Mm -hmm. Get creative. Yeah. And the magic medicine. Okay. We get to get our magic medicine right now. So we can um, do this fantastic, great. What are we going to do after? So that's the other thing we can do. We talk about things that project into the future. Great. So after we're done, are we going to finish watching? Did you want to finish watching all the Little Mermaid movie? Did you want to do something else? Okay, cool. Also predictability, particularly with an injection like this. So like when we start doing COVID testing, one of the things we do, we tell parents as a piece of advice is to, because you have to have that swab up your nose for about, you know, 10 to 20 felt seconds. Like, it felt like eternity. It felt like forever, <laughs> but we would have them sing a song. And so the kids knew when the song was over, it would be over. And so we can just count it out, but they knew that, right? So it's like, okay, great. You're right. It's not very comfortable. But guess what? By the time I finish singing my song, we're done and we're at, and we're talking about having to do slow injections, 
Because what we wanna know is when it's gonna be done. We can tolerate anything as humans if we know it's going to be done. Right. And to be like, great, okay, cool. Do you want to? And also giving them permission for distraction. Either I don't wanna pay attention at all. I would like to pretend you're not doing anything at all. Great, cool, good. Or I want you to tell me when it's going in. I want you to sing the whole time. Like you mentioned your son wanting to do the countdown. Great. Do you want to do the countdown? Do I want to do the countdown? So we have poke plans and those things on the website that allow kids to say, do you want someone to talk? Do you want them not to talk? Um, Some of those questions to ask are where those areas are, where you can have some control. Exactly. That's great. Does it change for older children, teenagers, or does it change? You know, we have obviously a lot of this drug's been available now for gosh, seven years. And now, you know, some of those kids who were kids back then, like my son, who's now just turned 17, Uh you know, trying to do transition to do their own injections. That's another, you know, of independence. And, you know, he'll have to do that when he goes to college or goes to camp or whatever. And so I'm just curious about, um, you know, that are there similar techniques, tools, resources when a child is starting to potentially self-inject? Yes, there are. So one, they get to know and they get to be kind of praised for their choices and what they want. But that's also honestly to really frame for them that getting to do your own injection is them having the most control. Yeah. Right. They control the speed. They control the location. They control the timing. They control any of it. And developmentally, that goes very much along that level of independence. Now, I've taught kids, hemophiliac children, as young as, you know, 10, 11 years old, how to self infuse. And that's hitting an IV like that. (laughs) So that's hard. Um, That's a skill set. But when we're able to frame this as an opportunity for power and control, opportunity for independence, But also this is the age. And I think your population is a great example. Like I used to work a lot in the transplant population and these kids often would get transplants as small children and then they would age up, but nowhere along the way, did anyone sort of stop and do re-education about why they're doing this protocol? Because what we explain to a six-year-old is different than what we explain to a 17-year-old or a 15-year-old. And we forget. And the example I give of that, because, and I'll look at parents and like, or providers and say, they don't have no idea why they're doing this medication, like how really how it works. And they're like, well, how can they not know? They've been doing it for years. No one ever told them. And I was like, (laughs) look, so I'll tell the story. I said, look, when I got my driver's permit, I got in the car to drive for the first time. And my mom said, great, let's go to your, you know, the grocery store. And I was like, great. How do we get there? And she's like, how do you not know how to get to the grocery? We've been there 8 billion times. I said, yeah, but I was never the one driving. Right. And so (laughs) with my son, I, I, that's, that's hitting home for me. <laughs> exactly. Right. You're like, oh, and especially as kids get older for things like this type of medication or injection, literally, how does it work for those kids? I mean, like, it's not like, Hey, this is magic medicine that makes you healthy and strong. But you're like, how does it make you healthy and strong? What does this do for us? How right. does this work? Understanding the science and understanding this for a lot of kids can be really helpful. Not universally, by the way, other kids are like, I don't care. I'll do it because I have to don't talk to me about it. I don't think about it out of sight, out of mind. And that's also fine. But I also think the thing that you mentioned, um, in our conversation too, is being able to support each other as kids get older, 
our ultimate belief as teenagers and in uh, any normal developing teenager is to feel like we're alone and that no one shares our experience. Mm -hmm. And you take that to chronically ill kids who are dealing with things that most healthy teenagers could only imagine. And that is, you know, exponentially increased. And so when we can have kids who truly do get it, even as parents, as empathetic and as uh, caring as we can be, we don't get it. We don't know what it's like right now to be 17 and having to do this and doing all this piece. And so connecting them in these really positive interactions where they can encourage each other and give each other their own tricks and tips of how do I do it? What do I think? How do I get through it is so much more powerful than any adult <laughs> is yeah. ever going and to that's, that's what I love about what the, the teens are doing on the teen advisory council that I was mentioning to you again before the podcast, but you know, they're all coming up with what worked for me and sharing it, sharing that. So for my son, um, he said, you know, I liked listening to music that got me really pumped up to do it. You know, so he had like a pump up playlist that got him all psyched, almost like before a basketball game. Or yeah, before. it's brilliant. Going out on the course. It's like that motivational music to get well, you ready to go. To so get you ready to go. And it's changing his psychological state. And exactly. that's exactly what it is. Like we all know the power of music. And so when we have our hype up music, yeah. it is, and again, what it is literally changing the way his body processes yeah. that pain cell and what happens. It is a brilliant strategy and you're like, fantastic. That is incredible. And it's such a great way to be like, yeah, you're, you did it. You changed the way. Yeah. Your body's going to process and deal with this. And to your point about the social piece, it, it's so, I just find it so fascinating. Yeah. The, the story that I shared um, about the, the mom who, whose daughter wouldn't inject in her thighs and just, you know, that was, she was no way she'd inject in her thighs. She'll inject everywhere else. And the doctor was really saying, you know, you got to rotate your injection sites. You know, we're going to see some lack of efficacy of the medication if we don't start rotating. Mm -hmm. And she was at her wits end and just said, you know, is there any way that, you know, one of the kids from the TAC can talk to them? And so we got on the phone and did a little FaceTime call and, you know, said, you know, it's funny because my son said, you know, my thigh is my favorite place to inject. That doesn't hurt at all. And yeah. that just that little conversation coming from a peer versus from mom you completely made the difference. And to your point, just it, it whatever it was, it changed the way that she was processing. The yeah, pain. it is. And it, we're creating a shift in how we're thinking about it and our, our openness to it. I think it's a gorgeous story and it's really so indicative of how this works and how powerful it can be. Mm-hmm. And to be able to turn around and say things like, do you know, you've actually left ner- nerve endings in your thighs. So that might be more comfortable on these days. Yeah. And we even talk about little kids. Cause again, that need to rotate is that's another choice they can make. And you even oh, had yeah. like a little body and you're like, Oh, yeah. we did. Oh, we did the butt last time. So, yeah. you know, Oh, let's, what about, do you want to do thigh or arm today or yeah. whatever that is? And again, like, especially since it can go <laughs> into different, but this is a great time for, for, you know, body humor jokes. And anytime yeah. we can inject humor into any of this, yeah, we'll it take it. such a gorgeous <laughs> way to take out some of the anxiety and stress yes, and to allow for a little emotional space to mess with. The other thing I was going to mention about, because what you're talking about with the teenagers gives them control when they're sharing with peers and they're, they're being able to share their story and get really validation of their experience with small children. Play is key. Mm -hmm. When we're working out our plan, we're doing our things. And this is when 
getting that medical play kit, getting, or, you know, whatever kids will make up things with whatever. Here's the pencil. That's now a shot. This is now my stuffy that's getting their poke. It may be even part of the ritual is the toddler does the poke on their Teddy before. So both first, so both you and Teddy are getting your poke, but you're going to do the poke for Teddy because you do such a good job of making them comfortable and making them strong. So that's so brilliant. Do you want to do the same arm as Teddy today? Or do you want to the same place? Or do you want to do something different? Does Teddy need an aerial bandaid or does he want a minion one today? That, that is how we work out our feelings as kids. They can't turn around and talk about it. Right. But that is a brilliant way to have aspect of control. And it's a great way to show them a plan without having to do it on their, their body. And kids are always paying attention. That's brilliant. (laughs) You know, one other group that I don't want to leave out, you know, we, we have a lot of adults who are diagnosed very late in life, Mm -hmm. become, uh, candidates for enzyme replacement therapy. And you've got people who've, you know, never done an injection on themselves before. Some people are very needle phobic or you know, yeah. become needle phobic because the idea of giving themselves an injection is really terrifying. Yeah. Um, you know, how is it the same for adults as it is for kids? Are there other, are there other resources or other things we should consider? First of all, it is, they're, they're similar and they're different because adults tend to have tremendous amounts of shame about this. And the truth is, is that needle fear is an incredibly common problem with adults in general. Mm-hmm. One in four adults has enough needle fear to change their healthcare decisions. Mm-hmm. Okay. So when I, I had a stroke that bet a dollar for every adult that told me that they had this issue, but no one else they know does. Yeah. Well, that's what I was going to say. A lot I was like, um, right. <laughs> unless you were a hermit in the woods, this is statistically impossible. <laughs> we just don't talk about it at dinner parties. Exactly. And this becomes a really big mission actually at the foundation is to get this topic out and to take away some of the shame of all of this. And the truth is it's really common. And so full needle phobia should, and especially if we're going to have to do things like learn to self-inject, seeking the help of medical, of mental health providers who can do full-on exposure therapy where, um, and that is simply when we start exposing ourselves to different level of whatever the fear thing is. So like in the case of needles, it might be like the first step is even thinking about a needle okay, and allowing that feeling. Cause we are physiologically unable to stay completely stressed and panicked. Mm -hmm. And basically it's about reassociating some of those things, but it is important. And the thing we have to remember, and again, so along with our mission of an organization, Is it the reason that that fear exists? The reason we all can think of someone right now who is a full grown adult who quote unquote, doesn't do doctors, Mm. which the chronic illness population has no luxury of doing, right? But we all know that (laughs) that person who doesn't do doctors and they don't do doctors because of something that happened when they were about four or five years old. Yeah. It's like a PTSD, right? It is. It is an actual PTSD reaction. It is a trauma reaction, which is why I was like, that's not logical. I'm like, of course it's not. But in case you haven't noticed, human beings aren't, we are not rational, logical creatures and fear is not a logical, rational response at all times. So one is to kind of get rid of the shame. I love it when high profile people talk about needle fear and anxiety. There's a great video that went around a little while ago about an NBA player who needed his teammate to come help calm him and hold him. What he got that uh, an injection. 
Um, Prince Harry talks about being afraid of needles. Mm -hmm. So this happens a lot. So first of all, is the shame. The second is to know that these strategies are really helpful. I have adults who will be full on in tears to know that like numbing cream exists. Yeah. Um, buzzy bees helpful. Like that vibration is not only helpful for, um, for the pain factor, but it's also helpful for passing out. So there's a lot of anxiety often around the vasovagal response and losing consciousness. Mm -hmm. So learning strategies around that. And a lot of it is about advocacy and using our voice. And that's true for our teens who are transitioning into their own care and for adults to learn to sit there and say, you know what? I get worried about passing out. I need to be able to lay down. Hey, I put numbing cream on this arm. This is where I want to do the poke today. Hey, I brought along my vibration. We're going to do this. Hey, my friend is going to come and rub my back and hold my hand while I do this because touch is so powerful. Yes. Right. It's like, just like when you want to hold someone's hand when you exactly connection or going through. Um, yep. And again, it really literally changes our body. We have a rush of chemicals that come into our body. It is that those calming chemicals come in to override that cortisol and those stress hormones that are popping up. Yeah. And that touch that music, all that. So a lot of the similar strategies, but also that face of like, there's no shame in that game of using this and figuring out, but there are a lot of people and also employing other people to come in and help you out. Right. Especially as we're learning to self-inject, it is hard you know, like it doesn't hurt that bad. And like, first of all, you don't get to determine that for another person, but two, no needles don't necessarily hurt that bad, but they bother us a lot. And that is a very normal response that what we really know is your desire not to do this is a primal, normal, self-protective response. It just happens to be not helpful in this circumstance, right? Because exactly. <laughs> so, so it's not weird or crazy. It's just, we have to find a way to get around it. And that's that issue that we have to find a way to get around it, to do what we need to do. Yeah. It's, it's really acknowledgement, right. For these adults yeah. that to your point, it's, it's the shame piece and getting over that. And then thinking about all of the other pieces, you know, what's really bothering me here. What am I afraid of thinking about each one and then providing that right kind of cocktail of comfort, you know, to help you yeah. to get through it, to get on the other side and, you know, reward yourself, right? You said, yes. go to Starbucks afterwards. <laughs> exactly. Yes, I will get that thing. Yes. I went through a week of this, or I did my first week of injections. I'm going to get that new gadget. Thank you very much. Things in your Amazon <laughs> cart. And then yes. You're like, ah, as soon as I'm done with this, I will press purchase. Yes, exactly. exactly. No, it truly is really, really powerful. And that's the thing you're like, and there's no shame in it. You're like, oh, I should have to do that. Like, why shouldn't you? This is really hard. Yep. We all need motivation to do hard things. That is not weird at all. Agree. Agree. Well, this has been awesome. Jody, I'm just so grateful for you, for the foundation, for all these resources, because I, you know, I, I said, I, I knew when we started going down this path with injections that we're not the first disease group to ever have injections and we can yeah. learn from each other. We yeah. can share what's working. And I just am so grateful. It's been such a fantastic discussion. I, we could go on all day, really. <laughs> okay. it's, it's an incredible wealth of information. Well, thank you so much. And please, I want to encourage your audience, if there's things that suggestions they have, questions they have, please do reach out our website. Also, there's email address on it. Feel free to reach out and ask us. We really do want to know. And we want to, we want to, we want to help. I appreciate that. 
Thanks again, Dr. Jody Thomas. So for more information, you can go to megfoundationforpain.org. And you've been listening to Bonafide HPP, a podcast of Softbones, the U.S. Hypophosphatasia Foundation. Join Deborah and other patients on HPP and me, where they continue discussing questions around hypophosphatasia and submit questions for the next podcast. Go to softbones.org and click on community, then HPP and me for instructions on how to sign up. This podcast and the intro music was produced and edited by me, Patrick Jaguer.